If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This is one of the, the greatest New Testament texts about Christ. Who he is as the author of creation and providence. Who he is as the head of his church. And who he is as our personal Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. Some scholars think this was an ancient creed or even a hymn that would have been sung in, in the early church. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word to us. Well, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. If you would again turn in your order of worship to the confessional reading portion, we are concluding our consideration of Lord's Day 13 this morning and confessing together question and answer 34. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13, question and answer 34. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 34 asks, why do you call him our Lord? Because not with silver, oh silver, but with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us, body and soul, from sin, from the tyranny of the devil, to be his very own. As you know, we are uh, considering this second section of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, this catechism has three main sections. What are those three sections again? Guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, the authors of the catechism were following especially Paul's epistle to the Romans, which is structured around these three, uh, these three categories. And we are considering the grace section. So this grace action began with an exposition on Christ as our mediator, true man and true God. And the response that we are, all are called to have in response to Christ, who is our mediator, is faith. And what are the three elements of this true faith, according to the catechism? Well, 
knowledge, assent, and trust. Cat, knowledge, assent, and trust. We have to know certain things, assent to their truthfulness, and then we have to heartily trust them personally for ourselves. What then is the content of this faith? Apostles' Creed. Uh, the creed which we recited earlier this morning. That's a basic summary of those things that we need to know, those things that we need to assent to, and those things that we need to personally trust in. And this creed is a Trinitarian creed, which means that it is expositing for us the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, and so we looked at creation and providence, and then we're currently considering God the Son, who he is as, uh, what does his name Jesus mean? What does this title Christ mean? What does his identity as the Son of God mean for us? And then today we are considering this title Lord. What does it mean that we confess Christ as Lord, as our Lord? And this title refers to his authority, that he has authority, authority over all things, that he is indeed preeminent. He's in a league of his own when it comes to his rule over this entire universe. Now, one of the benefits of, of the Heidelberg Catechism is that its, its main author also wrote a commentary on his catechism, which were originally lectures that he delivered to uh, future pastors, divinity students, uh, shortly after he wrote the catechism. And his, in his commentary on this, this question and answer, he speaks about how Christ's lordship can really be thought of, thought of in a trifold way. His lordship over creation, his lordship particularly over the church, and then his lordship over you and I individually. So I'd like us to consider those three aspects of his lordship. And you'll notice that our question and answer primarily focuses on that third element, his lordship over you and I particularly, that personal element, which arguably is the most important. But I also would like to expand our consideration a bit more and look at his lordship, his authority over creation, his lordship over the church as well. So first, Christ's uh, lordship over creation. When Paul, Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he asserts that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the author of both creation and providence. So if you have your Bibles open to Colossians 1, 15 through 23, where do we see that Christ is the author of creation? Yeah, verse 16, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, and so forth. All things were created through him and for him. This is Christ. So this tells us that Christ, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, authored creation in the very beginning. We also see that God is the author, Christ is the author of providence. Now remember, Providence is the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby he upholds all things, heaven and earth and all creatures. Which means that God didn't just create this world and leave it to itself, but he continues to actively sustain this present creation by virtue of his providence. And Christ here we see is the author of providence. Where do we see uh, that Christ is the author of providence in in? In Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Verse 17. Verse 17. Notice how it says, In him all things hold together. All these things that Christ created are held together by the second person of the Trinity. So God, 
Christ is, is Lord, not just of the church, but of the cosmos, of the universe, of creation. Now, the theological foundation for Christ's lordship over creation, for Christ's lordship over the common kingdom, so life outside of the church, is found in God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah. So when you wanna, uh, want to look for the theological foundation for Christ's lordship over the church, we look to the uh, covenants of grace, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. That's the theological foundation for Christ's lordship over the church. But if you want to see the theological foundation for how Christ rules the world, the common kingdom, life outside of the church, we look to God's covenant with Noah. Now, I'm not going to read the, uh, the narrative of, of God's covenant with Noah here, but it's found in, in Genesis chapter 8, 20, verse uh, through chapter 9, verse 17. So 8, 20 through 9, 17. I just want to highlight a few, a few things from that covenant that God makes with, with Noah, which illuminates his lordship, his Christ's lordship and rule over, over, over this world. One thing that we see is that God's covenant with Noah is universal. It's made with Noah, his sons, every living creature, and even the earth itself. No one is outside the parameters of this no one or nothing is outside the parameters of, of God's covenant with, with Noah. It's universal. And this is in contrast to God's lordship over, or Christ's lordship over the church, which is very particular. There's religious requirements required to enter that relationship. So it's universal. But it's also, uh, its goal is preservation. So remember, this covenant comes right after God's destruction of the world through the flood. And God then comes to know and promises that never again will he judge this world with these floodwaters. He also says that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God's going to preserve this present creation until the second coming of Christ until that greater and final judgment, which the flood just typified. Its goal is preservation. There's no promise of a savior. There's no promise of redemption. There's no promise of being taken out of this present creation and brought into the new creation. The promise is that God's going to sustain and preserve this creation. So every time we wake up and we see a sunrise, every time we experience the changing of a season, it's a testimony that God, Christ is still ruling this universe by virtue of this Noahic covenant, which was made thousands of years ago. So its goal is preservation. It's also temporary. While the earth remains, when Christ returns a second time, uh, this Noahic covenant will have reached its, its time limit, and God's going to come in judgment, a greater judgment than that of the flood. So it's universal. Its goal is preservation. It's, it's temporary. But there's also an, an ethic that God prescribes for all all people in this covenant that he makes with Noah. He, he calls mankind to be fruitful and multiply. This touches upon the institution of the natural family, which tells us that God thinks it's important for the, the flourishing of, of civilization, for procreation to occur within the natural family. We also see that God promises plants and animals will be given to mankind for food. 
And this is an implicit call to work because we know that food doesn't just magically arrive on our plates, especially for, for people in, in ancient civilizations. They had to work and work hard uh, to provide food for a growing society and civilization. So there's this call, call to work, which it, it connects to enterprise in institutions. Civilizations had to uh, create institutions to provide food for a growing civilization, to provide other means to um, provide for the material necessities of, of people. So there's an implicit call to work. But then there's also a call to promote justice. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. So we see that God cares about justice. Remember what precipitated the flood. It was the sinfulness of man which had gotten out of hand. And as God is some, in some ways recreating the society, he cares about justice being promoted, the evildoer being punished. So those are three main things that he prescribes for society at large. Being fruitful and multiplying. Working to provide for the material and, and uh, needs of, of, a, of a people. And then the promotion of justice. You'll naturally recognize a similarity with this and God's original creation mandate where he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to have dominion over this creation. So there's a similarity, but you see that with this covenant with Noah, it's this creation mandate that's suited for a fallen people. There's no mention of the spirit, no mention of the tree of life, no mention of the Sabbath rest, which indicates to us that God knows that mankind now is not able to work and achieve that heavenly Sabbath rest anymore. And furthermore, we see that it's, it's suited for a sinful people. God didn't have to tell Adam explicitly to um, punish the one who sheds the blood of man. But now he has to call for this proportionate uh, um, retributive justice to be enforced. So then in Romans 13, when, when Paul speaks about the civil magistrate, we see that he, in, in, in many ways, is echoing that covenant that God made with Noah. The magistrate is called to promote this justice, this Noahic justice, which God had given to mankind uh, centuries before. So when we want to, can, want, want, want to discern how Christ rules, his lordship over creation, we look to that covenant that he made with Noah. And this covenant with Noah also establishes for us the idea of religious liberty within the, the common sphere. Because when you think about religious liberty, this is a question that theologians throughout the centuries have wrestled with and for almost 1,500 years um, thought that you know, the magistrate had the, the right to enforce a state religion. When you look at God's covenant with Noah, which is how Christ rules the common kingdom, you'll notice that God doesn't enforce a, a particular mode of worship upon mankind at large. This is very distinct compared to the other covenants that God makes with man. There's no religious requirement needed to participate in the Noahic covenant. And so what this teaches us is that no one has religious liberty before God. Romans 1.20 tells us that. That uh, we all are without excuse by virtue of creation. However, God has not given mankind the task of lording it over other people's consciences how they should worship. Notice that one of the tasks that God gave mankind was not that he should be worshipped in a particular way when it comes to the common kingdom. 
You know, he says enforce justice, promote the institution of the family, enterprise institutions, but he doesn't enforce the requirement of a particular mode of worship upon, upon mankind to be enforced by fellow humans. And so that distinction between ultimate liberty, we don't have ultimate liberty before God when it comes to how we, how we worship, but we do have the right not to have other people lorded over our consciences how, how we should worship. And so Christ is Lord, he's king, he's king of creation, he's king of this universe, he's king even outside of the church. And we look to that covenant that he made with Noah uh, to discern the parameters of, of his relationship to a common society. So Christ is Lord. He's Lord of creation. But we also see that he's, he's Lord over the church. So if you look back at Colossians chapter 1, we see Paul very beautifully uh, goes from, in, in, in verses 15 through 17, he speaks about how Christ is the author of creation and providence. Then he now focuses on, in verses 18 through 20, how Christ is, is, is Lord of the church. Is Lord of the church. So in verse 18, we see that uh, this statement about how Christ is head of the body, the church. So Christ is Lord of the church, and then Paul continues to go on and he speaks about Christ being the firstborn from the dead, which of course is a, a, a statement of his res, uh, uh, speaking to his resurrection. We also have Paul alluding to his death in verse 20 when he speaks about Christ making peace by the blood of his cross. So in the imagery of, of Psalm 118 that we considered earlier, Christ was a stone rejected by builders, i.e. the crucifixion, who then became the cornerstone, i.e. The, the resurrection. And therefore, by virtue of his death and resurrection, Christ is the head, the ruler, the king of his church. He's the one who washed his bride pure of their sins and, and, and stain and rose again to prove that he actually did that, that our sins are actually been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So Christ is Lord, he's king of the church. Recall Matthew 28, when Jesus is about to leave this earth and he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me as the Lord of the church. Or Matthew 16, when Jesus talks to Peter. And, and the, the word for Peter and rock, same word in the Greek language, Petra. You, Peter, Petra, uh, you are Peter. And on this rock, or Peter, <laughs> I will build my church. Jesus isn't establishing the papacy here, but remember that new creation temple. Christ builds his church upon the foundation of himself and the apostles. Christ is Lord of, Lord of the church. And consequently, when he leaves this earth, he then goes and tells his disciples, go into all, all the nations and make more disciples, more living stones and bricks in this new creation temple by the word and by the sacraments, by faithful discipline and discipleship. And now in this era in which we live, an era in which uh, we're not laying a new foundation, but we are laying more bricks upon this, this temple, the Lord continues to build his church. The Lord Christ, he builds his church through his word and through his spirit as it comes in the context of the local church where there's pastors and elders. 
And pastors and elders are ministers. And that word literally means servants, which means that we're, uh, we're servants of the word. Pastors and elders only have declarative authority. They only have the po uh, power to declare, to enforce, to interpret the word. Pastors and elders are not, are not, uh, do not have legislative power. Meaning they cannot create new laws, new doctrines. And this is where this is, the church always gets into trouble when they begin to think that her leaders have legislative authority. This is where the Roman Catholic Church started to go off the rails. They believed, even to this day, that the church, the magisterium, has, a, has legislative authority to bind consciences with doctrines that are not derived from the Word of God because the church has equal authority with the scriptures. But as Protestants, we rightly confess that pastors and elders have declarative authority. We're just declaring what the word says. And any time a pastor or elder goes outside the bounds of the word, that's when our authority, we've transgressed our rightful authority. And there's many Protestant churches that they may not profess to have this kind of authority, but in practice, they do. They function as if they have um, uh, legislative authority. And this is why having creeds and confessions that actually function within the church are so helpful because it, it limits the, the authority and the power of, of the church's leaders and rightly acknowledges that Christ builds his church through his word, his word in the context of, of his church. So Christ is Lord of the church. Now this is comforting. I think we all, we all probably can grow discouraged at, at current events maybe grow discouraged at uh, things going on in, in the church broadly conceived, but this truth that Christ is Lord of the church is what we need to, to, to rest upon. Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Lord will continue to build his new creation temple until no more bricks need to be laid, until all the fullness of the elect are brought in, and then he will come. Here we see that how, how, how Christ's lordship over creation and Christ's lordship over the church are uh, in perfect um, harmony with one another. The reason why he wants to preserve this creation by virtue of the Noahic covenant is so that he can continue to build his new creation temple. So every time you wake up and you see a sunrise, you can be confident that God is still being faithful to the covenant he made with Noah and is preserving civilization, society, for the purpose of his kingdom being built. So Christ is Lord over both domains, creation and the church. And we, we can take comfort that the church will never be snuffed out. There will always be a true institutional church where the gospel is preached, the sacraments are administered, and faithful discipline and discipleship are taking place. So Christ is Lord over the church. Well, if you look in Colossians chapter 1 again, again we see Paul's um, 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 beautiful construction of these, these verses as, again, he, 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 he begins broadly by talking about Christ's lordship over creation. Then he talks about Christ's headship and lordship over the church. And now in verses 21 through 23, Paul gets specific. He gets personal. And he uses his second person uh, plural pronoun, and he speaks directly to these believers at Colossae. 
and reminds them that Christ is Lord even over them. He starts with these broad uh, truths of Christ's lordship over creation, the church, and now he's speaking personally to the church uh, believers in Colossae and by extension to you here today who profess faith in Christ. In verses 21 through 23, then, we, we learn this basic summary of guilt, grace, gratitude in just another form. He says, you were once alienated, alienated from God because of your sin, separated. There's a huge chasm that existed between you as a sinful creature and God in his holiness. As a consequence, then, Christ has reconciled you to him. He made peace by the blood of the cross. He reconciled you who were alienated to God who is holy uh, through his life and his death, Christ's life and his death. And as a consequence of this reconciliation, you are being made holy. God's purpose and goal is that you might be presented holy and blameless before him on the last day. Alienation, reconciliation, holiness. This is how Christ personally exercise his lordship over you. Well, Paul here speaks about the salvation in terms of alienation, reconciliation. Another way scripture speaks about this personal salvation is by bondage and redemption. And in 1 Peter 1, which is the text that our catechism is leaning heavily upon, 1 Peter 1, Peter says that you who are uh, once in bondage, right? in bondage to the evil one, the, your sin and the law, uh, you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as gold or civil, silver, and that's what the, the language the catechism picks up on, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so here, Peter is, is communicating the same truth that Paul communicates in Colossians 1. Not only were we alienated, but we were in bondage, in bondage to the evil one, in bondage to the, the threats of the law, in bondage to our own sin. We were slaves to those things. But now we've been redeemed. We've been ransomed. Not with mere monetary um, currency, but with the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed. And this redemption isn't isn't referring to us going from being a slave to now being free. Rather, we continue to be slaves. We continue to be servants. It's just that we have a master change. Instead of our master being the condemnation of the law, our own sin, the evil one, Christ is our Lord. He is our master. And we are servants. We are slaves of, of him. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6 that we, because we have the Holy Spirit, are temples of God, and thus we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to Jesus. As a consequence, we are called to glorify God with our bodies. So Christ's lordship over you personally is, at, yes, at, uh, on one, in one instance, is, is an affront to our personal autonomy. It's, it's a recognition that we are not our own. <laughs> that we are slaves to Christ, servants of Christ. But, but it also is... Such a comfort, is it not? Such a comfort to confess that Christ is our Lord. We do not make him our Lord. He is our Lord. And therefore, we do not identify, first and foremost, with our past failures. Uh, we, uh, we heard earlier in our service from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul telling these Corinthians 
that uh, you know, those who are idolaters, adulterers, greedy, swindlers, all these sins that I'm sure these Corinthians were still struggling with, but he says, and such were some of you. I'm not saying that these Corinthians are perfect. They, far, they were far from it. But he's saying that you are now members of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. That is your identity. So we do not identify first and foremost with our, our present failures, our past failures, nor even our, our present or past successes. But our fundamental identity is that we belong to Jesus. He is our Lord. And every time we celebrate communion, this is a confession, a reminder to all of us that our fundamental identity in this life is that we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first, when we think of ourselves, that's the first thing our minds should go to. And furthermore, when we celebrate communion, it's a reminder that our bond, our greatest bond with one another is this common union with Christ. It's not common hobbies or common political views or common cultural um, um, ideas. It's, it's, it's that we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. That's, that's the substance of our union. And so remember, remember the context of, of this catechism. This is the context of true faith. These are the things that we are called, each of us, to personally know personally assent to, but most importantly, we are called to place our hearty trust in Christ as our Lord, the Lord of creation, the Lord of the church, and most importantly, the Lord over you particularly. So do you believe, do you believe that you are not your own, but you belong body and soul, life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ?